0: Well, welcome. So glad that you're here. We are continuing this teaching series that we've been in for the last few weeks, Asking for a Friend. And throughout this series, what we've been doing is kind of tackling head-on the hardest questions, the biggest challenges that get presented to the Christian faith. And I think I told you this in the first installment, but this series actually was born several months ago out of an experience that I had when I was at our summer high school camp with our high school students. We did something at that camp that we had never done before and we opened up the floor to Q&A that the students could ask any question and they, we allowed, we asked them to write them in anonymously so that they didn't have to raise their hands and be embarrassed that they had a question. And I will tell you, I was blown away by the questions that these high school students asked. They, they were profound. They were insightful. They, they came from a place of deep, deep Questioning and really, really smart. Things like, how do you forgive a parent who left your family when you were young? What do you do when you drift away from God? Um, When do you know that it's okay to get married? Uh, Is Judas in heaven? I gotta tell you, these were not the questions I was asking in high school. I I was floored. It, It was really remarkable. And as you might imagine, in a room full of high school students in 2019, not a small number of questions had to do with sex and romance and what happens in that arena from a God perspective. They they asked incredible questions, things like, uh, is is premarital sex okay? Or is it okay to live with somebody if you really love them but not get married? What about LGBTQ lifestyles. On and on and on the questions went. And and I was, again, absolutely amazed at how profound and real these questions were. And, And I remember as I was reading over their questions that morning before the session, I immediately, especially when I got to those questions, I immediately flashed back to a moment that we had as a family. I remember when our daughter Emily was in elementary school She was coming up on the responsible social behavior segment of fourth grade, and Julie and I began having a talk that we needed to have the talk, and I nominated Julie, and (laughs) she willingly accepted, and she came back to me a few days later and said, well, I had the talk with Emily, and she said it went about as well as it could have gone, and I just told her. I said, if you ever have a question, you can ask me anything. You can ask Daddy anything. Anytime, just we're gonna handle it on a question by question basis. And I said, Great, way to go, babe, you're the best. And then I forgot that the conversation had happened until about two weeks later. I was tucking Emily into bed one night and I leaned down and kissed her on the forehead and turned out the lamp beside her bed. And I was walking out the doorway of her room into the darkened hallway, inches from a clean getaway. (laughs) And she said, Dad, I said, yeah. I had no idea what was coming. She said, in the dark. You know, Mom and I had a talk. And there in the dark, I hung my head and I said, yes, I I heard something about that, Emily. She goes, Mom said I could ask you anything that I wanted to. Now, internally, I remember thinking this in the dark of Emily's room. I thought, she said, what? What? And I think that that initial knee jerk response that I had there in the dark of my fourth grade daughter's room long, long ago, for far too long has characterized the way most of us, Christ followers, and particularly or in general, the church has addressed issues of human sexuality. I I think we've kind of like kind of hoped that it would go away, or we've kind of responded out of fear and ignorance. And the reality is we are called to a higher game than that. I think if if we would actually ask person by person in this room, what does it mean to have a a God-centered, gospel-driven view of sex and sexuality, most of us would really struggle to be able to articulate what that is and, and, and what that means. And I understand where that comes from. But I think we as the church have to do a better job of of communicating what God says biblically. And and right up front, I think we have to own the fact that historically, we as the church have not done a great job. If you go all the way back to the early church fathers, 100, 250, 300 A.D., there were some whacked out views of sex In the church, some church, early church fathers, authorities in the church said that God only tolerated people having sex for the purposes of procreation. For the record, that ain't in the Bible. I'm just telling you what they said. There were others who said that Adam and Eve could have only had sex after the fall, after sin entered the human condition. Again, please let me express quickly, that ain't in the Bible. Somebody ought to shout amen. My point is, we've got a long and checkered history with this subject, down to more recent times when people who go by the name Christ follower would would picket and protest people that they disagreed with and hold up signs that say God hates fill in the blank with whoever they disagreed with at any given point in time. Now, the church has its own issues But I think we could also admit that the world has an equally sketchy relationship with sex. Our our world, our cultural perspective, I think charitably could be characterized as absolutely schizophrenic. This world, on one hand, it's very casual. Probably the most popular refrain of our day is, it's just sex. It's, It's no big deal. It's free sex. No big deal. But on the other hand... For some people, it is the absolute center of the moral universe. It it is the very thing upon which their lives and their identities hang. Bertrand Russell was a 20th century philosopher, historian, and mathematician, and atheist. He won the Nobel Prize in 1950 for his contribution to literature. Bertrand Russell said the following about Christianity. He said, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. Ooh, that's an indictment, not of Christianity, by the way, but of Christians. That's not a biblical view of sex. At the same time, the secularist, the naturalist of the 20th century that we have inherited their philosophical, cultural worldview says that sex is the be-all and end-all. Margaret Sanger was a 20th century activist whose work led to the founding of Planned Parenthood. I'm going to put her quote on the screen here behind me. This is what Margaret Sanger said. She said, Sexual liberation is the only method to finding inner peace and security and beauty. Through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination, which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise. Whew, wow. Now listen, as, as a fan of sex, that's a lot to ask even for sex. So, so which is it? Is, is it? is it just sex or is it the only path to spiritual illumination and enlightenment? The world tells us it's both. And I think That it's incumbent upon us who go by the name of Christian to to do the legwork, to do the homework, and know what God says. That's part of what we've wanted to do throughout this series is to to be able to articulate not only what we believe, but why we believe it. It it is so important. And, And I believe with everything that I have that if we will do that, particularly in this subject I think with everything I have, the world will be a better place. I think you and I, if we will do the work, if we will adopt and appropriate what God says about sex, that you and I personally will be more content, more fulfilled overall, and especially in this area. I think we'll be better husbands and wives. I believe we'll be better moms and dads. I think if we would more lovingly, and more openly communicate God's ideal and what God is calling us to and what he's created us for in this arena, I think our world would be a better place. I think there would be less abuse and confusion. I think there would be more peace and satisfaction. I think that that God has something so great for us in this arena if, if we will do the work. Turn to your neighbor and tell them right now like you mean it with a smile on your face. Do the work. Do the work. Now, just, just so we understand and kind of understand the baseline, Hebrews chapter 13 I think gives us a great place to start this conversation. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The Bible says this. Marriage should be honored by God. All. Say all. 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 And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, there's a lot <laughs> packed into that verse, so let's just kind of take it aside. First of all, marriage in God's economy is a big deal. We're, we're going to come to that in just a second. Marriage should be honored by all, whether you're married or not, single, married, engaged, divorced, undecided, whatever your category, we should all honor marriage. I was very, very blessed. I had a front row seat to that even though my parents were divorced. My mother went out of her way to never trash my dad. Even though he hit the eject button on our home and and moved out and kind of called a do-over on the marriage thing, My mom went out of her way to never denigrate him, to never run him down. She always continued to to honor him as our father, even though he was no longer her husband. Now, I've I've shared with our church before, her mother did not share the same conviction. (laughs) She had no trouble sharing exactly what she thought about my dad. And I think that's just the love of a mama bear. Not saying it was right, but I understand. Marriage should be honored by all. And as part of that honoring, keep the marriage bed pure, that it should be undefiled, that it should be guarded and and actually sacred, That, that marriage and the marriage bed is something that is to only be shared between a husband and a wife. That when a man and a woman come together in marriage, God says that is such a precious, rare relationship, unique in all of the human experience, that it should be guarded tooth and nail. That it, husbands and wives, children, society, culture, the church should honor marriage and do everything that we can to keep the marriage bed pure. That means that the people we surround ourselves There are people who help us, who challenge us, encourage us to fight for our marriage if you're married. And it's also important if you're not married, that that you are keeping the marriage bed pure, that you're saving, that you're reserving that relationship for the covenant of marriage that God has provided in his grace. Now, I know when you read this, marriage should be honored by all for God. That, man, you read that, boy, that's the Bible, that, that's, some, that's some religious talk right there. Honor, purity, judge, adulterer. Blah, 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 blah. But, but what about this idea of maybe celebrating? Is it, is it possible that, that a godly perspective of sex could actually celebrate sex? That, that it could be, I don't want to shock anybody, enjoyed. I'm just throwing it out there. That just maybe God's intent, His design, and His desire is for husbands and wives to actually celebrate sex, and and in this in this celebrating, they're actually consecrating themselves and the act itself. That means that they're they're making it sacred. So there's there's this celebrating and this consecrating that happens between a husband and a wife, that that there's something holy that is actually drawing us closer to God as we honor marriage and keep the marriage bed pure. And, wait a minute, but wait, there's more. Not only are we celebrating, consecrating, but as we celebrate and consecrate, the Holy Spirit of God uses that one-two punch to regulate the influence of sex in our lives so that it never becomes a... It never becomes a tyrant, that, that no counterfeit version of it becomes becomes like a a binding, like a like a, a substance binds an addict. That that in God's economy there is celebrating, there is consecrating, and there is regulating all together as we honor marriage, all of us, and Keep the marriage bed pure. That's that's what's going on there. Now, God's not done. Look at what else God says. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, Proverbs, which is God's book of wisdom, of living out God's wisdom in our lives, this is what the book of Proverbs says about wise people sexually sexually. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. That is poetic language, ladies and gentlemen. He ain't talking about water. (laughs) May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Somebody ought to shout amen. And just just so we're clear, when it says, may your fountain be blessed, that's not the bird bath in the backyard. That's exactly what you're thinking it is right now. That's what God says in the Bible. And this is not just a fluke that happened in Proverbs because Solomon had a bunch of women in his life, which was a whole other sermon series, but this was... God's wisdom. This is so important to God that he devoted an entire book of the Bible. There are only 66 books in the entire Bible. And one whole book is devoted to erotic, romantic love between a husband and a wife. The Song of Songs, or the the Song of Solomon. And it's written in a poetic form between a bride and her groom. And they... They call out to one another in these poetic couplets that go back and forth. And I'm, the, the Song of Solomon is so direct, some might even say explicit, that in Jewish tradition, Jewish children were not allowed to read it until they reached a certain age. I'm going to share with you just a small bit of it. Song of Songs, chapter 4. This is the bride writing to her groom She says, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. (laughs) I, I don't know how else you read that. But, I mean, and that's the woman. That's a woman who is safe, who is secure, who is drawn and attracted to her man. That's in the Bible. That's just the part I can read to you. (laughs) Now, men, (laughs) the bar is very high for how we woo our women romantically. Here's what the groom said. I don't have this on the screen, but just listen. Just listen to this. This is what the man says to the bride. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Is it any wonder she was completely captivated by him? (laughs) But do you understand? God, God has given us this gift to celebrate, to celebrate within the protected, guarded confines of covenant marriage. This this is what God, I mean, it it blows my mind to think that people walk around like like Bertrand Russell and think that somehow God and and therefore Christians are anti-sex. God invented it. I mean, this was his idea. He he put all of those nerves where he wanted them to be. He he wanted us to be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) So he, he made sure that we wanted to. And if if we want to, that's okay. It, it's to be celebrated. But I think it's important to understand why. Because here's the thing: if it's only about the physical, if it's only about the celebrating, then we're missing, we're, we're missing the underlying why. And the underlying why is really, really, really important. To understand this, go, go all the way back to the beginning. In, in Genesis chapter 1, you see God creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and he made everything that there is. But the crowning achievement, the piece de resistance of his creative genius, was you and me. It, it was people. People. The Bible says that God created us just a little lower than the angels. Who, who is man that you are mindful of him? Think about that for saying that God is mindful of you and me. Man, I, I like it when Julie texts me in the middle of the day for no reason. Hey, thinking about you, love you. Well... To know that God Almighty is mindful of us. That's a staggering reality, but it's real. And look at what the Bible says about how God created us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Watch this. Male and female, he created them. So here's the thing that we need to understand and and not shrink back from. We, We need to be kind but uncompromising on. Male and female are not arbitrary. Male and female are not arbitrary. God very specifically created male. And female to bear the image of God when He created creatures that would carry His image into the world. You and me, you see, it wasn't enough that just male was there. If you go through the creative order, at every step along the way, God saw what He had created and it was good. Day two, God saw what He had created, it was good. Day three, God saw what He created and it was good. Day four, God saw what He created. You see where I'm going with this. Day six, he makes man, Adam. And he sees Adam, and he says, it is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, there are some logistical, some housekeeping issues, if you will, attached to that reality. God knew if it was just Adam, the garden would be a mess. (laughs) But it's not just for that. You see, Adam by himself could not accurately represent the character, personality, image of God. He needed a woman. Somebody help me preach. He needed a woman to also complement the image of God that he carried. And when man and woman come together and become one flesh, that is the most accurate representation of the image of God that humanity can ever represent. That's it. There is no better picture than a husband loving his wife submitted to her, a wife loving her husband submitted to him United, not just one in flesh, but one in flesh, one in spirit, one in mind, one in heart, in every way. God created man in the image of God. He created them male and female. That's why male and female covenant marriage is consecrated. It is Sacred, it is set apart, it is different. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, he quotes Genesis. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Can I just take a time out, real quick? That's a whole nother sermon. Men, you got to leave mama. Women, you got to leave dad, dad. You, you leave your family of origin to create a new family, it's a new priority. We continue to honor our families of origin, our parents, but this is the new priority. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Then Paul says this, this is a profound mystery, the greatest understatement in the whole Bible. A man and a woman become one. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, Now, all of a sudden, this thing called marriage, this this sexual relationship is not just about the two people participating in it. It is also about Jesus. It's also about the proliferation of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that hopefully, prayerfully, when when people see the way I treat Julie or they see the way that Julie treats me, they're like, "And there's something different about them. In a good way. (laughs) I I want want what that is. Because we're representing Jesus. So now all of a sudden, it's not just about my physical gratification, my urges, my appetites. There is a massive why attached to the what. What? And the why is the purposes of God. And when you understand that, then you kind of go as a husband and a wife or maybe a one-day husband or wife. You go, that gift is worth guarding. That that gift is actually worth celebrating. It's worth consecrating. And and it's worth regulating. and, And not allowing any any counterfeit to rob what God has in store for me, to rob what God might do through me in this arena. Now, I fully understand how countercultural this truth is. I I get it. I, I don't live in a cave my head in the sand. I get it. But this is the truth and we do ourselves, we do our children, we do our world a disservice to not proclaim the truth in love. The truth in love. This, you see, here's the deal. As a church, we have decided after a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel, a lot of study, That this idea of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, that is such a big deal. That's a hill we'll die on. That's, That's not up for negotiation. Now, we have to communicate it in love. We have to be kind. But I would suggest to you that affirming any kind of brokenness, any kind of diversion from what God has laid out, that's not loving. That's not kind to tell somebody, yeah, go for it. It'd be kind of like that night that I had the conversation with Emily. If, if I told her in fourth grade, you know what, Emily, God has given you this gift that he wants you to give to your husband one day, but whatever you f- feel like doing with it, that's okay. That's, a, that's actually, that's what God, that's a good thing. What would I be doing? That's that's not loving. So sometimes when you love somebody, you you have to tell the truth. And and I think our, our example, again, is Jesus. There's that classic moment when the religious watchdogs of his day threw at his feet a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And and they were were using her the same way she had already been used. They they just wanted to use her to make a point, to trap Jesus. And, And they said, now you talk about forgiveness. Here this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Our laws say that she should be stoned to death. What say you? And, and the Bible records a, a, a fascinating moment in the life of Jesus, and he just, he just knelt down in the dirt and started to kind of doodle. Wouldn't you love to know what he doodled? Some people have theorized, and it's only a theory, that he started writing the names of everybody he recognized of her accusers. I, I don't know that that happened. But he just kind of doodled, and he said, you're right. That's what the law says. Go ahead. And I'll tell you what, here's how we're going to do this. The one of you who is without any sin cast the first stone. That's the moment I really want to be there for. That would have been just hysterical because you could have said, we were this close. We had him. And, And the Bible says something equally interesting. It says that they started to walk away. They dropped their rocks one by one, but they dropped their rocks from the oldest to the youngest. The oldest amongst them knew the junk in their own lives. They, they knew the sin in their own lives. Isn't it true that when we're younger, we're a lot less likely to admit when we're wrong? Maybe that's just me. But <laughs> And they, they dropped their stones, and they walked away. But Jesus wasn't done. John chapter 8, verse 10, the Bible says this Then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Verse 11 No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go. And sin no more. There is no greater example of grace and truth than this moment. Neither do I, said Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect and sinless life. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Truth. He loved her enough to tell her the truth that what she had been doing was less than, that it was not that, that wholeness, that shalom that she was created for. He didn't condemn her for it, but he said, go and sin no more. Step into what it is I created you for. That's our example as followers of Christ. but I caught something in this passage that I'd never seen before. I I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. I've I've been reading this story since I was, I don't know, middle school, high school, A couple of years ago, it's been a minute. I've never caught this before. when Jesus asked her, did even one of them condemn you, her response, her response was no Lord, Lord, she confessed him as Lord, she said, you are the center of my world, not my sexuality, not my sin, not my brokenness. You, Jesus, are the center of my world. And when when that happens, then then all the walls come down. All the all the, the pretense, the defensiveness, the guardedness, the, the fear. The Bible tells us that perfect love drives out fear. Whatever you want to believe about God, believe this, he loves you perfectly. You have nothing to fear. And anything, anything that we give up, he is greater than. No, Lord. Lord. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I want to ask you who, or maybe what, is the Lord of your life? Is there something or someone sitting in the place of Jesus Christ? Maybe. Maybe for you it is sex or, or some counterfeit of sex. Jesus says, that, I died for that. I rose again from the grave more powerful than that. It, it may be something else, but whatever it is in your life, he is greater than and if you've never stepped into a relationship with him then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now in this moment if God is stirring something in your mind something in your heart your response is surrender like this woman just Lord, yes, Lord. If that's you, then we want to invite you to pray just right where you're sitting. Pray that yes prayer right now. Just silently talk to God from your heart to his and say something like this. Just say, yes, Lord, I need you. I need Your grace, your forgiveness. And so I confess you as my Lord. I surrender my life to you, all of it. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, thank you, thank you for loving me and loving me enough to tell me the truth. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment stirring, because this is sacred ground that we're on, but if that was your prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life, because this is the moment upon which God will build every other moment, not just of this life, but forever, and as a church, we want to help with with what's next. And so I wanna ask you to do just a couple of things before we leave in a minute. Right now, if you just prayed that prayer, would you take out the program that you got when you came in and just start filling it out? The connect card that's inside there. Open it up, you'll see there's your name, contact information, and just below that is a place to indicate that I committed my life to Christ this week. And that card begins a conversation that'll proceed at whatever pace works for you so that we can help with what's next. Once you finish that card, you can tear it off along the perforation there on the fold. And on your way out, if you would just make sure that you hand that card to one of our ushers, our host, or to one of the folks underneath the hub, at the hub, underneath the big front porch out here. Second thing I wanna ask you to do, if you would just raise your hand, If you just prayed to receive Christ for the first time, and you meant it, would you just raise your hand? Lift it up and hold it up in the air for a second as a statement in your life and the life of this church. And know that we celebrate that with you. As a family you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.